0: So first, uh, I have to say a couple of things. Um, I know Scott's mentioned it, but worship has been phenomenal. Um, we're, I guess we're just in this season of, of worship, and it's been so good. And so like, I want to personally thank everybody who gets up on this stage, because it takes me to just a really special place every morning. Um, and kind of on that note, I kind of have a confession to make, because... I've started to learn the soundboard and stuff, and, and I feel guilty because Scott's number of times, he's like, man, so, thank you so much for helping out, and people have said thank you, and I feel bad because I'm not, I'm not necessarily doing it to be helpful. Uh, I'm glad that it helps. I really am. But I do it because I get to come in early and hear worship twice. Like, I get to get here, you know, at 830 and go through my own set of worship, where they're just, like, singing just to me. And it is, like, stellar. I get to just walk around, especially today when they're singing about jumping in rivers and throwing your hands up on a mountain. It's like, oh, God, this is, like, this is for me. So, uh, thank you, worship team. Um, yeah, I want to start out by telling you guys a story. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm not training to be a pastor uh, you know, Noel used this word last week, homiletics, right? Um, I just wanted to say it so I could say like I, that I said one big word, in my, <laughs> homiletics, there we go. Um, uh, I have not been studying how to give a message or any of that stuff, but I do love telling stories. Um, it's one of my favorite things, I love telling stories, I love listening to stories. And so I kind of want to tell you this story. Um, it's a story that I wrote about a um, situation I was in a few years ago and that will kind of take us to, to where I want to go <clears throat> the flames from the fire sway back and forth with the slightest ebb and flow of the night's air it's not even a breeze per se but more so as if the desert is breathing taking in and then exhaling long deliberate breaths as it slowly falls asleep the juniper and the sagebrush they crackle as they burn their heat warming our outstretched hands It's not a cold night, but the crispness in the air is distinct, and the warmth from the fire softens its bite. We stare at the fire, often for long periods of time without saying a word. Its movement is so captivating, it makes me wonder if flames are what first taught man to dance. There's no moon tonight, but from this high sandstone outcropping, where hours ago the vast desert was laid out before us, now are only vague hints of the mesas and canyons that lie below. The stars, so plentiful and brilliant, reveal the line of the horizon and the subtle features of the landscape that surrounds us. Some of us begin to lie on our backs, relinquishing the warmth from the fire on our faces to instead gaze upon the grand display above. As I look up at the endless starry sky, I notice a student of mine reach up with her arm. She's lying on her back, and as she stretches out as far as she can, she moves her fingers, grasping into the night air towards the stars above. And as she reaches the cuff from her, from her fleece, it falls back towards her forearm. And in the flickering light of those dancing flames, I can see the marks that she's left on herself. After a moment, she stops. She lets her, arms, her arm fall back and rest at her side. And I can hear her take a deep breath. And then she says to me, Bryant, I'm so glad no one can ever touch the stars because that way they can never get messed up. See, beauty is such a fragile thing. I've been blessed over the years with the opportunity to spend time in the wilderness with many students like this young girl. And whether male or female, early teens or late 20s, they've all taught me about the fragility that lies within us. Heroin addicts, prostitutes, alcoholics, the beaten, the broken, and the ones who cut. I've sat around a campfire and slept under the stars with all of them. And those same dancing flames have, become, have come to blur my eyes as they well up with tears from the stories we share. I've spent many nights laying awake in my sleeping bag trying to process the things that I've heard. The raped, the bullied, the abandoned, the molested. And as the stories unfold and the brokenness begins to reveal itself, the behaviors begin to make more sense. Anything to numb the pain. Anything to fill the void. Anything to make them forget. I have no answer tonight. I have no wise response to this depth of insight from a 15-year-old girl. I'm an ill-equipped instructor and it's quite a humbling feeling nothing I can say will make things right but out of that humility and inadequacy I've come to a realization people who are broken often don't need answers people who are broken don't need my advice they need someone to feel the pain with them they need someone to sit around a fire and listen There's a time for saying and doing, but there is such deep value in simply being for someone. The chill in the air has become more pronounced now, and as I sit up, I notice our fire of flames is now but a pile of coals. They still warm my hands when I bring them close, but looking at the coals is not nearly as entrancing as the movement of the flames. I stand and look around at the huge expanse of darkness and silence. The peace out here is something I shall never grow tired of. You're just as beautiful as those stars, I say. And nothing anyone can do or say can change that. Because just like those stars, they can never touch our beauty. Beauty, as fragile as it is, cannot be taken away or lost. Often we simply need to be reminded that it's still there. And so today I want to talk about brokenness. Um... You know, for whatever reason, it's it's something that I have become <clears throat> engulfed with, uh, and not not just with myself. I've I've definitely had to deal with my own brokenness, but I've found myself just in these broken places, and uh, the risk of sounding heartless. I love it. There's special places to be. Um, I consider it a privilege to to work. With these students that I had um, in this wilderness program. For almost two years now, I've worked as a teacher in San Marcos. Um, I work at a a residential treatment facility. And so the high school that I work at is kind of paired up with this treatment center. We've got students from all walks of life, all backgrounds, every different race, every different socioeconomic status. Um, And they're tough, and they're hardened because they've had really terrible things happen to them. They've just been broken. I'm going to quote the great Jeremy Wilson um, because he's one of my favorite people. Um, We got to do spiritual direction over at the Wilson's house and one night we were just in great conversation and Jeremy said this and I don't even know if he remembers saying it. It was just kind of off the cuff. Um, But I went home and I wrote it down immediately because it stuck with me. Um, he said when we're in the struggle when we are in it we get to feel in tune with the rest of the world and there's just something so profound about that because when we are in it everybody else is in it too and that's the thing that's tough about about brokenness, about struggle is when you're in it you feel like you're alone you feel like there's nobody else who understands Like there's nobody else who could possibly fathom what you're going through. And so I've worked with these kids. Um, You know, school is uh, crazy to say the least. Uh, The day-to-day stuff that goes on there is I can do nothing but just laugh about it. I've gotten chairs thrown at me. Um, I, I keep tabs on like my weekly averages for how many times I get cussed out. And I'm doing really good. My averages are really high. Um, Wait, maybe that's the opposite way. They're low. Um, No, but it's it's crazy because these kids are, um, you know, they're trying to go to school while they're in rehab for, you know, for drug addiction, for um, aggression, for all this stuff. And so you put them in this classroom, and it's just like this explosive box of brokenness. Uh, And it's really crazy. And I... Every day I go in there and I feel totally inadequate. I stand in front of these kids and it was awesome because I've gotten to where you know, I'm more comfortable with them so I was nervous about getting up in front of you guys today and Nate said, well, just imagine we're all like drug addicted you know, gangbangers or something. <laughs> and it actually gave me some comfort on <laughs> that. Thank God. Yeah. So feel free to holler out cuss words at me. I, I will feel like I am teaching. Like, that would be great. Um... But so, so you know, dealing with this with this deep seated brokenness in a, uh, just in these places, and I just have been asking myself, what do I, what do, I do with this? Um, you know, there's just moments that are so intense. Like this moment, you know, I had in the desert with this girl is just so intense. Um, and so I've wondered, like, what you know, what do I have to offer? And then taking that kind of, what do we, what do we have to offer? brokenness what do we have to offer this world because i promise you they're not just the students in my classroom there's a world of people out there who are broken who have been broken and who, who see no chance of healing okay um and so the first thing i've learned is that i really don't have much to offer i i'm not going to fix anybody's problems i don't have that good of advice um I can barely manage to keep myself in order, most times. Um, but so I want to go to I want to go to Luke, um, and it's a story that we all know. It's a story of the the lost son or the prodigal son. Um, and I want to read a little bit. Read a little bit in Luke. So starting in uh, verse twenty, it should be up on the on the board. So the son has left. Right, he took his inheritance. He took off. He cashed it in. Um, he went out lived it up, and then realized he had nothing left, right? He was broken. Um, He had squandered his inheritance. And as he's working with the pigs for next to nothing, and he's hungry, he realizes, God, my my dad's servants get paid better than this. They live better than this. And I know I don't deserve to be his son anymore, but I could at least be his servant. And so that's kind of where this picks up. Um... And so the father standing there and it says, uh, and he sees his son way off. His heart is pounding. And he runs out and he embraces him and he kisses him. And the son started to, started to speak and he said, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. And I don't deserve to be called your son. But the, the father wasn't listening to that. And he really, he, like I love how it says in the message the father wasn't listening, period. So, like as soon as he sees his son, he, he doesn't really care anymore. He just sees his son and just wants to embrace him. And so he throws him a party, right? Throws him this huge party, puts the robe on him, fresh sandals, gives him the ring, all that stuff, cooks. And then la- later on in the story, we see the, the other brother, the older brother. And that's where I want to pick up again. Says the older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in the party. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. And see, now the dichotomy's kind of changed. Like now the son doesn't want to listen to the father. And we'll talk about that. The son said, Look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with a feast. So this older brother is super pissed. I don't know if I can say pissed. Uh, I said it. It's on the podcast. There we go. Uh, So the parable of the lost son, we see, you know, we've got The father, the older son, the younger son, right? And this is how it's kind of of shown up to me. Um, We see this grace from the father, but even more we see how the father and his grace were distorted in both the minds of both his sons. One thought he was no longer worthy to be a son, and the other was so impressed with himself that he felt entitled to it. And so the way I see it, you know, the Father is God our Father. And when we turn to Him, He doesn't listen anymore. He doesn't care. He just wants to grab us. And the lost Son is us before we accept His grace and before we accept what He wants to do for us. And this is the part that really stings is the older Son, that's how I see the church. And I could be wrong. Um... But that's how I see, corporately, what Christianity is doing today. Um, see, because we can allow both our badness and our goodness to distort the truth about God. And the truth about love and the truth about grace. Because the essence of grace is profound unfairness. And that's something that's taken me a while to wrap my head around, but grace is profoundly unfair. At the root of grace is unfairness. And so as I think about this, and I read this, and then I see what I see at school, and I see what I've seen with broken people in the wilderness, I've come to see that... Grace is where it's at. Grace is all I've got to give. Grace is what we have to give the world. And the world needs us to engage because, not because we have answers, not because we have good advice, but because we have tasted grace. I don't understand grace. i don't know how it works. Um, other than the fact that I've tasted it and didn't deserve to taste it when I did. Um, and so only someone who's tasted grace that is so undeserving could ever be willing to turn around and give it away to others who feel that they don't deserve it either. There have been two huge uh, huge times where I feel like man, grace has just shown up and they're both long, epic stories, great stories, and I will tell you them later uh, if you would like. but. Um, One of them involves being just broken and done and giving up on life and literally sitting at the base of a tree and telling God, if you're real, show up because I quit. And God showed up. Literally. With a plate of food because I hadn't eaten in three days. It's a good story. I'll tell you later if you want to hear about it. The other one was with my wife and I. Brokenness. Man, so broken. Broken beyond repair, as far as I was concerned. We had been separated. I left. I couldn't deal with what was going on. I was too hurt. Um, and I was ready to end it. And standing here today, I could not imagine not having her in my life right now. The stuff that we've gotten to do together. The stuff that we're going to do together. um, You know, the little baby that's on the way. Um, But I was ready to end it. And I told Scott. I remember sitting in his truck. um, It's one of the few times I've seen Scott cry, like really hard. And I felt bad for making him cry. (laughs) Because I knew it was my fault that he was crying. But I told him, I was like, Scott, I'm done. I quit. Like, I cannot do this anymore. I'm broken beyond repair I'm telling her I'm done. And Grace showed up. I literally went to Landa Park to divorce my wife and sat on a bench next to her and told... She sat down next to me and I was about to tell her I want a divorce. And Grace showed up inside me and I don't know where it was from or what happened, but I could not say it. and I knew something had changed and I knew that even though the fair thing to do was to take care of myself and leave grace doesn't care about fairness sometimes by the miracle of grace reconciliation actually happens and the kingdom does come We talked about reconciliation earlier with Scott. Um, It only happens by grace. And it's a miracle every single time. And the kingdom does come. You know, we pray that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what it... When heaven comes here, that is grace. That is the slightest bit of heaven that we get to taste. Because it just gives us just a taste enough... That we can take the next step, so that we can give it away to somebody else. And so I've realized, okay, I have grace. Grace is what I'm supposed to be given. Grace is what I have to give this world. But how do I how do I give it? How do I engage? And so I want to tell you a story about my dad. Um, two quick things about my dad. I love my dad a ton one reason is because he taught me how to laugh that dude laughs more than anybody else I know he jokes more than anybody else I know and I love it second thing about my dad that I love is that he stepped up for me when I was an outcast after I was born my biological father tapped out he was done he didn't want me he didn't want to do it with my mom he was over it so he left And my dad stepped up for me. And it's made it huge. Totally changed the course of my life. That in itself is grace. That's grace stepping into my life before I even knew what was going on around me. But the story I want to tell you about my dad is the fact that my dad and I see the world totally differently. Uh, And it's great because we get to talk about it. Um, But we see the world, just different perspectives. Um, And so one time we were talking about the state of the world and whatever and politics is always a great one to talk about him with and uh, anyway we're talking and he makes the comment you know I think a big reason that things are the way they are is because people haven't been told enough about hell because when I was growing up people were told this is right this is wrong and if you do wrong you go to hell and what's happening is too many people are being told well that's okay or anything goes it's okay God still loves you God loves you this and that and so he felt like people needed to know more about hell and so I asked him I was like well dad like do you have non-Christian friends who haven't heard about hell he couldn't think of any I was like well dad do you have any like who do you hang out with that's not a believer that doesn't know Jesus kind of couldn't think of anybody. Um, and so that kind of concerned me a bit because I have a lot of friends who aren't believers. Um, I've worked as a river guide for 12 years and there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus out there. And I love them. They're some of my best friends. And so I told my dad, I was like, well, you know, Dad, like... Uh, I know maybe things were different when you were younger, but none of my friends care about going to hell. And I don't know if that's, some, that's something that is new here, but I've got a lot of friends that could care less about going to hell. If you tell them they're going to go to hell, okay, <laughs> good talk. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't scare anybody. And maybe it used to. I don't know. Apparently, it did when my dad was young. Um, I've, personally, before I knew Jesus, like, I, I wasn't scared about going to hell. I could care less. Um, and honestly, right now, I kind of care less about going to hell either, because it doesn't really... seems irrelevant to me right now. And it seems really irrelevant when I stand in a classroom of kids who are living in hell. See, I've got a student whose dad used to make him and his brother fight every night to see who gets to eat he doesn't care if he's going to hell he's lived hell he's living hell right now I've got a student who tried to kill herself she tried to hang herself and when she was in the hospital on the breathing machine they called her dad to tell him what was going on and he said I got a lot going on right now. I can probably get there in a couple days. She doesn't care if she's going to hell. There's a guy named Clarence Jordan who helped found the Habitat for Humanity. Um, He's an author guy from Georgia, shout out to Mr. Chuck, Georgia. Um, He's got this quote that's been just with me for a number of years now. And he says, you know, I'm seeing that the gospel of Jesus has had its greatest greatest growth when men have been dedicated enough to him and his principles to quietly live them in a dying and distressed humanity. And if you're unsure I I can promise you can come to school with me on Monday. There's a humanity that is dying and distressed. Sadly this quote once again this is not this is not what I see. When I look at my church and I say my church because not you guys but my church, my Christianity because As a follower of Jesus, as much as I disdain it, I have to claim Christianity as a whole. And I promise you, it drives me nuts. But what I see is not a church that lives quietly in the midst of the dying and the distress. What I see is a church that's loud. I see that older brother who's entitled, who's saying, what the heck? I've been here I go to church every Sunday. I dress nice. What's the deal? I talked about working on the river. Um, funny story, but you know, humor's always got a little bit of sadness to it. Um, we have all kinds of groups come through rafting, right? And I've been doing it for a number of years, so I'm a trip leader now, so I'm kind of in charge, and I've got to organize all these people. And I'm, I say who's going to go with who and whatnot. And we get all kinds of groups, and we get tons of church groups. And sadly enough, um, on a fairly consistent basis, river guides will rock, paper, scissor to see who doesn't have to take the church group. I mean, it's funny and it's sad. But nobody wants to take them. Not because they're the quiet folks who are going to live out the principles of Jesus, but because they're loud. Because they're usually high maintenance. They're going to complain about something. And, first thing in the river guide's mind, they're not going to tip. And Scott's alluded to this before with, you know, going out to eat. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't see, I don't see this. Um, you know, and I get in these conversations with with my my friends. Uh, and I I don't know what to tell them. kind of want to, sorry, I don't know, like, sorry for every church group you're going to take down the river. Um, I don't know. You know, here... Locally, there's this thing that's going to happen this summer. thousand man float. Now, this guy wants to get a thousand Christians to go float down the Guadalupe River. I got no problem with that. I think it's great. We need Christian folks to get out there and engage. Get out on the river. I think we should have a thousand Christians on the river every day of the summer and they shouldn't say a word but that's not, supposed, that's not what's going to happen because according to the thousand man float website the Guadalupe river is a soul danger zone I take offense to that because I spend a lot of time on the Guadalupe river and it is anything but a soul danger zone that is God's creation at its finest. And his spirit's there right now. It was there yesterday. I was just there yesterday and it's there. I'm gonna go this afternoon. I promise you it's still gonna be there. They want to make a reality TV show out of this. Thousand Man Float. And if there's anything I've learned about reality TV shows, it's that they're not based in reality. They're not. They're anything but real. It's contrived, it's for ratings, and it's drama. But that's what we want to participate in, I guess. You see, Kingdom Come, to me, is not a reality TV show. Um, It's not a political rally where we hoot and we holler, and we feel good about ourselves because we're with like-minded people. That's not the kingdom come. Kingdom come is not a flash flood. Flash floods actually do more harm than they do good, especially if you're in a drought. Right? There's a drought out there, a spiritual drought. And if you flood it, You're going to destroy whatever residual stuff is left over there that's made it through the drought. Kingdom, I see, is like a slow, soaking rain. It happens over time, and it's gentle, and sometimes you might not even notice that it's there. And like the water, we are supposed to find the lowest point water always goes to the lowest point every time that's where we're supposed to go we can take our message of grace and our taste of grace and trickle down to that lowest point and start there I hesitate this next point I have like two big asterisk marks next to my next thing because I was like going back and forth whether I should go there. I'm going to go there. I always hesitate to give parenting advice, except to Nate. I like giving him parenting advice. <laughs> but, because I don't have any kids. So I, I always hesitate to like, tell people what to do with their kids, because I ain't got any kids. And when I take care of them, I just get to give them back. So, parents. I love the kids at this church. They're some great kids. And I love all the little interactions I get to have with them are awesome. But my, my kids at school, see, my kids need your kids. And I understand as a parent, you just want to hold on to those kids and you want to keep them safe. You don't want anything bad to happen to them. You don't want them exposed to the stuff out there. But my kids at school, my kids need Your kids. Because your kids might be the only chance they have to hear about things like grace. See, because the kids I see in here are so awesome because the parents I see here are so awesome. You guys, just through the way you live your life, whether you say it or not to them, you are instilling this message and these themes in your children. I love hanging out with Issa. Issa was like the first, she was like the first kid that one of my friends had. And I've got this like special connection with Issa because I remember vividly when she was born. Uh, and I remember going to the hospital. And it was at the time when I was separated from Laura. Laura. And I remember just feeling so broken and so low. And at the same time, I was so happy. And to have these two extremes of just, God, you are so good. This is so amazing. And God, where are you? Because I'm lost. To have those two things collide in the same day, I'll never forget it. And that is reality. Reality. That's life. God is good. Where are you, God? There's too much beauty. There's too much pain. Like that's that's the world we live in, right? The crazy thing is, Isa just turned seven. When I hang out with Isa, she's she just knows these truths that my 17 year olds never even considered never even heard of where would they hear that they're not getting it at home they're not getting it on the street because guess what the people who know it aren't on the street they're not going to hear it on the river because guess what the people who know those truths aren't hanging out on the river Unless they're going to bring a thousand other people with them. To make them feel good about themselves. And make a TV show out of it. To fully understand grace and to believe in grace means that we believe there's enough time and enough love. Enough patience and enough forgiveness to walk with each other while we struggle. It's like Jeremy said, when we're in the struggle, we're in tune with the rest of the world. Last thing I'm going to leave you with. The biggest compliment I've ever received from one of my students... They weren't saying it to me. They were saying it to another student who was new. We have like a rolling enrollment at school. So there's always kids coming in, kids leaving. The dynamics are constantly changing. Um, But I overheard a kid. They were walking towards my classroom. And I had stepped out to use the restroom and I was coming back this way and they couldn't see me and I was coming around the corner. And they said, oh yeah, next class we have Mr. Baker. He's for real. He's for real. And I stopped and I was like... Just told this new kid that I'm for real. He doesn't know I'm faking it till I make it. I don't know what I'm doing here. No, but he said he's for real. See, the world, they're hungry for something that's real. And sadly, all they get is reality TV. And that's what suffices because they're hungry for realness. And if that's the only realness they can get, that's what they're going to take. That's what they're going to hold on to. But we get to serve a God who is for real. And we've tasted grace that is so real. I'm going to ask Scott to come up here and kind of close this out in some prayer. Um, Sometimes we speak truth to remind each other. I'm a firm believer that um, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be taught things, right? Um, And so sometimes we speak out truth to remind each other of what the deal is. But sometimes we speak truth just to remind ourselves, because we need to hear ourselves say it. And I, to be totally honest, a lot of today was just, I needed to hear myself say this stuff. Because the reality of engaging with a broken world is that it is exhausting. It's totally worth it. And it's so good, but it is so exhausting. And that's where we come in as a family. That's where we need to rally. Not on the river and tell people about it, but rally around each other. Because if we're really going out into a broken world and engaging with it, we're going to get tired. We're going to get tired real quick. So this guy can come up and lead us, I'd appreciate it.